King into this world. God, we pray for Your Gospel to be spread to the farthest parts of the earth. Lord, when we read about these, uh, these British soldiers detained in Iran and we think about the, the strife and the hatred that exists in so many parts of the Middle East, East, Lord Jesus, we pray, would You ride into the Middle East and let the name of Jesus be established in these, these countries where there is, there's no hope. And God, we pray that You'd ride into our country and Lord, overcome the wickedness and the secularism and the materialism that infects our nation. And Lord Jesus, we pray that You would ride as King and declare Your supremacy over the south shore of Boston. We pray that You would ride into our church, Jesus, even today. That Lord, You would reign over this church. That You would reign over our, our aspirations. Lord, You would reign over our, uh, this issue of the building project. Lord, reign over the people of Your church. Lord, cleanse Your temple, we pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in each of our lives You would ride in as King and that You would have total supremacy. Oh God, we pray that we might not hold anything back from You, that we might not resist You, but that we would joyfully embrace Your Lordship and Your Majesty, that we would be people who love and worship the King. And God, we know that as You reign in our lives, as, as every aspect of our life is surrendered to You, then Lord, You then use us to spread Your kingdom around the world. And so, Jesus, I pray, fill our church up with a sense of joyous celebration this Easter season as we contemplate Your majesty and Your glory. Because all history is moving toward You. And all of the kingdoms of this world will be surrendered to You. And every enemy in this world will bow to You, Jesus. And so, Lord, we come to You now joyously and and voluntarily to declare You as our King. Lord, be with our church today. I pray for those who are struggling. It just seems this, uh, I've been saying this, but this year a lot of people have been uh, going through difficult times in our congregation. Lord, we pray for Karen and Kari and Orville and Tony and Connie as they struggle with cancer. God, heal them. Jesus, place your healing touch upon them. I pray that you'd strengthen our sister Peggy Carlson as she struggles with her congestive heart failure. And Lord, be with Terry Tupper and provide her a place to live. Lord, open up our hearts toward her. And God, I pray for Jerry Devaney, for his son, that his son would be healed and would turn to you and renew his faith. And Lord, our brother Maurice Ridpath in the hospital, Lord, encourage him. And Lord, even others I don't know of, we just pray that you'd be with us, Lord. It's obvious we're a frail people. We have marriages that are going through challenges. Lord, we have families that are going through difficulties. Lord, people in our midst are lonely and hurting in different ways. And so, Lord Jesus, we need You to come, not only as the conquering King, but as the healer. And so, Jesus, come into our church and heal us and encourage us and unify us. God, we pray for the Easter week services, that You, Jesus, would be exalted and lifted up in all of them. That this would not be about going through familiar traditions, but it would be once again surrendering ourselves to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that you would uh, stir our hearts to invite people that we love to Easter Sunday. God, I pray that friends I've invited might come, that they might hear about your greatness, Jesus. I love these people and I want them to meet you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us and to them. And now, Lord Jesus, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would reign over your church. Lord, you exercise your lordly rule through your word. And so we as a church gather joyfully each Sunday to open the Bible and to see what it is our King would say. What is His bidding? And so we pray today that as we open up Your Word that You would speak to Your subjects, that You would lead us and guide us and fill us with the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I would uh, invite uh, you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. And any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, can go to children's church. And there's children's choir today, so if you're in the kids' choir, you can head off to the kids' choir as well. We're looking at Luke chapter 20. Verses 27 to 40. It's on page 1042 if you're using a pew Bible. <clears throat> and here we are in, in the story of Luke. Uh, it's during Holy Week is when this story takes place. Jesus is in the temple and He's in this constant running argument with all of the religious leaders. And today he goes head-to-head with a group of people that we haven't heard a lot from yet, but we're going to hear from them today. They're called the Sadducees. Uh, So look at um, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. It says, Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, having no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection... Whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. I uh, was reading a story that's told by George Bush, not not our president, but his father, George H. Bush, uh, when he was serving as the vice president uh, under Reagan. He attended the funeral of Leonard Brezhnev, who, as you know, had been the the leader of communist Russia for many years. I think only Stalin was leader longer than Brezhnev was. But uh, at Brezhnev's funeral, uh, his widow was standing next to his coffin, which was open. And at the point in the ceremony when the the soldiers come and they close that lid of the casket for the very last time, it's finally going to be closed and sealed. Just as the soldiers are putting their hands on the casket, the widow did something. She quickly turned, put her hand in the casket over her husband's chest, and she made the sign of the cross over his chest. Which is pretty remarkable because this is the leader of communist Russia, you know, an, an atheistic state, the citadel of atheism in the world at that time, and, and here's this wife, and she makes a sign of a cross over her husband, which, you know, it's just so fascinating. Like, what did that mean? Was it a protest? Um, was, uh, was she a closet Christian, and it was just kind of sneaking out there? Uh, maybe it was simply in the face of death, in the face of these realities, 
you know, we start asking the big questions and it was a gesture of hope that maybe, maybe there is something after death. Uh, and, and so that's really the, the issue that's being raised in this text today. Is there life after death? Um, have we thought about that? Do you, do you believe that there's life after death? Or is death the final word? Uh, last Sunday I asked the question, where will you be 24 hours from now? The question today is, where will you be 24 decades from now? Where will you be 24 centuries from now? Will you and I be anywhere? Uh, will we simply live in the memories of a few of our ancestors who are really into genealogies and will be a name on the list? Or, or will we actually be somewhere? And these aren't questions that we like to ask. You know, as Americans, we have sort of, we keep death at an arm's length. I think a lot of cultures, death is more of a reality. We don't like to deal with it. It's, it's very sanitized for us. The process of dying and grieving is very sanitized for us as Americans. And, you know, we're kind of obsessed with youth. We're into Botox and, you know, plastic surgery because we don't want to pretend that we're actually heading that way. And so this is, maybe you're like, why are you talking about it? We just had this great music and, you know, this is Happy Sunday and you're talking about death. I mean, Jeremy, you're dragging us down. That's my point. We don't think about it. Uh, until, one of the times we do think about it is at a funeral. And at a funeral, it's there. And when someone that we love dearly is gone, then we, we face it and we start thinking about, wow, what is there after this? And at funerals, even people I know who don't know God or don't care about religion at all, they'll say things like, well, I'm sure she's in a better place. And I know he's looking down on us right now. And it's like, you know, make that cross over the person. Because when you have to face the reality of, of death, uh, you know, we start grasping, what is it? Is there anything after this? Or is it like a match? You know, it goes out and then the match is out. Or is there life to come? And that's the question that we're wrestling with in this text. And even very hardened people who don't care anything about religion or God or anything like that, people who are very secular, even they at a funeral will often have their hearts ripped open and there'll be a place, a space in their souls during that time of grief into which they can begin fitting these ultimate questions about reality and God and the eternity. And so uh, those are good questions to ask. And that's the question that's being asked here of Jesus. Is there life after death? And what we're going to see in today's text is that Jesus answers that question, yes. In fact, not just that there's life after death, but specifically Jesus taught that there will be a resurrection from the dead, which is even more than just you know a, a bright place at the end of the tunnel, but that there will be a resurrection of the dead. So let's look at his text. At this text, it says some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. So here we have some new characters in the story. We haven't really interacted with them. We've seen a lot with the Pharisees, right? But here's the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Who are these guys? Well, the Sadducees were, just in a word, they were the ruling aristocracy in Jerusalem. They were a small group of wealthy, powerful people who they're in control of Jerusalem. They're in control of the temple. They were the ones who ran the high priesthood. So if you're going to be a priest of influence, you had to be a Sadducee because they controlled that system. Uh, and even the Sanhedrin, maybe you've heard of the Sanhedrin, it was the 70 uh, Jewish uh, men who were the highest court in Judaism. They were the highest ruling authority and they were almost all Sadducees. So the Pharisees that we've read a lot about were kind of a populist movement among the masses. But the Sadducees were the power brokers in Jerusalem and they controlled it, which is why they're so irritated that Jesus is there. 
Because up to this point, Jesus, you know, yeah, he's some weird itinerant preacher out in the hinterlands of Galilee, way up there. Who cares? But now Jesus has come to their turf, Jerusalem. And he's ridden in like a king on a donkey. And he comes into their temple and he starts knocking over tables and saying, you can't sell these animals here and you can't change money here. And like, whoa, 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 whoa. this is our turf, Jesus. And so these Sadducees are now coming at Jesus because he's invaded their temple. And, and so now they're trying to confront him and trap him with some questions. Another thing about these Sadducees, which is right here, is they, they didn't believe in a resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see, yeah. Yes, I am officially the 28,524th pastor to tell that joke. So, anyway, <laughs> I just couldn't resist it. So, they, they, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, they didn't believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe in that stuff. Uh, they, I wouldn't, it would be wrong to call them rationalists, but they were very rationalistic, even though they were people who believed in God ostensibly. Uh, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the rest they didn't buy. And interestingly, of course, the first five books of the Bible have a lot to say about running the temple. So they conveniently picked those books of the Bible that dealt with their power base, which was the temple. So, you know, sort of interpretive, uh, convenient interpretation there. And, and they, it would probably be wrong to call them deists, because that would be anachronistic, but they were kind of like deists. They believed that there was a God, and you had to try to respect that God. But for the large part, life was about doing your best to keep things the status quo and to protect your wealth and to protect your power. And so they were a very conservative movement in that sense. And, you know, and as I was reading about the Sadducees, I was like, you know, I know a lot of people like that for whom uh, religion is kind of a ritualized sort of thing. That does, they do it, but it doesn't mean a lot to them. And really, life is just about getting by. You know, I know this one guy, and uh, he goes to church, takes his kids to church. But when I talk to him, I mean, he's got nothing good to say about the church or about God, and he doesn't really buy that stuff. And he tries to talk politely to me, but, you know, he knows I'm a pastor, but every once in a while something will slip out about, you know, those religious people. You know, but, but he goes to church uh, because that's part of his tradition, and his kids have to go to church, and he knows his kids hate it, but it doesn't matter because it's like it's something you do. It, it's part of his bringing up, and so he's going to do it, even though he doesn't buy it. And really for him, yeah, there may be a God, whatever, but really it's about doing your best, whatever that means, to get by in life and play some golf and do some fishing and, and hopefully live a, a successful life and have enough money to retire on. And that's kind of the purpose of life. And then you die, and then that's it. It's kaput, it's over, you're done. And, and I think there's probably a lot of people who have that sort of perspective, sort of a Sadducean perspective about life. That if there is a God, it really doesn't matter too much, and then this is the life you have, so make the best of it. You know, hope it turns out right for you, <clears throat> whatever that's supposed to mean. And so these guys come to Jesus, and they, they want to pepper him with these questions. They want to try to show that his belief in the resurrection is ridiculous. And so they come with this question, and this question that kind of would go over our heads, it's sort of a a question that would apply to the Jewish people then. But let's just dig into it, see if we can make sense of it. Here's the question they asked to try to show that, prove that there is no resurrection. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. So this is something that's called Leverite marriage. L-E-V-A-R-I-T-E. This is how it worked. If I have a brother, my brother marries some girl, and then they don't have children and my brother dies, 
I would be obligated to marry my sister-in-law and hopefully we would have children and if we had a son, that son would then take on my deceased brother's name and his property and he would be the new lineage for my brother. I know that sounds totally whack, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, we're like, what? I mean, talk about a reality show just waiting to happen. I mean, that would just be amazing. Uh, but <laughs> what is that? Well, remember, patriarchal culture, agrarian culture, subsistence living, so that all you really have is your farm and your family. That's what you have. That's your life and your existence. And so if, if, you're, if you die and you have no children to carry on your family name and your farm and, and you just have a widow and now she's defenseless in a very hostile uh, survival kind of culture, your, your, your life dies out. So if you lose your name and you lose your inheritance, it's as if you never really existed on the face of the earth. So this was a great tragedy. And in many ways it was very gracious to take in the widow and marry her because... You know, it's not like, like today where a woman who's single can go out and have a successful career. I mean, it's just farming. It's just farming the rocks. You know, you need a whole family with some big, strong boys to go out there and farm in order to survive. And so a widow all by herself was in a very vulnerable position. So in order to protect her and to protect the family name, you would marry your, your, your sister-in-law. Okay, so it's, it's a different time, different culture, but that's why the law was there. So, they say, eh, we've got a hypothetical question. A once upon a time kind of story. All right, Jesus, let's see how your resurrection makes sense. So, there's seven brothers. Verse 28. First one married a woman and died childless. Second and third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. What a poor woman. I mean, for crying out loud. Verse 33. Now then, at the resurrection that you believe in, Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It doesn't make any sense, Jesus. They're going to get raised from the dead, and then there's the seven. It's preposterous, Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, who's she going to be? Come on, Jesus, tell us. Make sense out of this. Tell us how your resurrection scheme works. And and so they're they're really using rational, this-worldly arguments to critique the idea of the resurrection. And we do it the same way, even though we don't have Leverite marriage. People ask the same kind of questions today. They say, well, if someone's cremated, how can they be raised from the dead? Or, or what, if, um, what if I die and I'm put into uh, the ground and I'm near an apple tree which sends its roots through the casket as it breaks down into my decomposing body, takes nutrients from my decomposing body, uses them to make an apple, and then you come along and eat the apple, and then the nutrients become part of you. And then you die. So who's, at the resurrection, who's who and what's what? You know, you've become part of me and I've become part of you. So how, you know, oh, it's ridiculous, right? And so people make those kinds of arguments today. The resurrection just makes no sense. How can it be? Because really all we have is this world and this life and you do your best and you try to play some golf and, and have some friends and get your kids into a good school and retire well and then you die. And that's it. Right? And Jesus' answer is, no. There is a resurrection. So that's central to our faith that Jesus taught a literal, real resurrection from the dead. That's what He taught. And for us as Christians, this is a non-negotiable. Because if we believe Jesus is the King, if we believe He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, then that means He has to reign over everything, including death. Because if death persists, 
then there's something that is against the kingdom of God that he doesn't reign over. And so we believe if Jesus is king, even death must bow to Jesus. And those who belong to Jesus must be raised. There must be some true victory over death. And so Jesus goes on to show them that, no, the resurrection is very logical. He's going to argue back against them. Look at verse 34. He says, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. So Jesus' first answer is this. Hey, look, you guys, you lame Sadducees, you don't even get it. The world to come isn't like this world. And so you're trying to analyze what it's going to be like then based upon the way things function now. But the way things function then is different. It's a different order of reality. And so you can't use arguments from now to prove what it's going to be like then. The kingdom of God is going to be different. In other words, resurrection is not like a reboot. It's not like rebooting your computer. You know, sometimes my computer freezes and I get the blue screen and so I control-alt-delete my computer and try to bring it back and if that doesn't work, I unplug it then I plug it back in and finally it comes back up and when my computer reboots, what do I have? I have the same thing. I have my desktop where all my icons are in my desktop and all my applications are still there and all my files are still there. It's, just, it's the same thing except rebooted. Resurrection is not just a reboot of you. Resurrection is an entry into the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, which is something far more glorious and awesome than anything we've ever seen. It's a different order of reality. It's where Jesus came to take the whole creation, to renew the creation. In fact, uh, we have a great passage that describes it. Put a finger here in Luke. Just put your finger there. Turn it over to Revelation 21. The last book of the Bible Second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21. And here we have in Revelation, it's like a, like a peek through the keyhole, you know, peek through the crack in, under the door, trying to see in what eternal life looks like. Here's a little peek under the door. It's all we get. It's a little glimpse. But look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And the sea in Revelation is a symbol for the, the hostile nations. So it's, it's a way of saying that all God's enemies are gone. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, this is a symbol of God's people, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and... He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. No eye has seen no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has got in store for you in eternal life. And so we can't even imagine it. But it's an, this old order and all of the rules of this creation are going to be gone. 
there's going to be a new creation. Just like God made this world. You know, can you believe in the new creation? I don't know. Well, can you believe in this creation? <laughs> Go outside and look at it. He made this. This just didn't come about randomly. I mean, come on. And so if he can make this world, he can make a new creation. And he says that he will. And so getting back to Luke chapter 20, Jesus' point is, in that world, there's not going to be marriage and people being given into marriage. It's that we're going to have a different existence as, as a community of people born again, uh, raised from the dead, in harmony with one another. And so marriage is a category of the old order that's passing away. My father-in-law is so funny. Uh, he, he always says that this is the one passage of the Bible where he thinks Jesus was misquoted. Because, uh, you know, when he thinks of, of being, going to heaven and seeing his wife and not loving her, he's like, I just can't believe it. <laughs> so that's his little joke. You know, that this is the one passage the Bible is misquoted. And so we talk about that. So how could that be? How could I go to heaven, or rather be raised from the dead, and see my wife and be like, eh, you know, I, I just can't imagine. I love my wife so much. It, it's so difficult to comprehend. And I guess the closest I can get to wrapping my mind around this is that perhaps in eternal life, in, in the resurrection, I will be able to fulfill the two greatest commandments, and so will you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And right now, the only person that I probably come the closest to loving my neighbor as myself, I haven't really loved any neighbor as myself, especially some of my neighbors, um, but, you know, the, the, the neighbor that I've loved, that I've come closest to fulfilling that command with, is my wife. That's the person I'm closest to loving as myself. And could it be that in eternal life, when we're raised, and we fully reflect the glory of Christ, and my sin nature is taken away, and all that nastiness in me that keeps me from loving you, and all the nastiness in you that keeps me from truly loving me is gone, perhaps we will all love one another. And, and I don't mean this in any warped sexual way, but like a married couple. Like we will love each other with the kind of warmth and the love that God has showed us in a glimpse of in marriage. That we'll have that kind of community and fellowship with one another and with Christ. Truly, a new family. We will be, as it says, children of the resurrection in a new kind of family. And so what's the point? It's, hey, you Sadducees, you don't know anything. (laughs) This new thing that's coming, the resurrection is going to blow your minds. And you can't argue against it with these categories of this world because they just don't apply. You're comparing apples to oranges or, you know, apples to diamonds. This is something amazing. And then just to kind of put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, with this whole story. But look what he says in verse 37 or 38. He, Jesus has stuck the dagger in. Now he's going to give it a little twist just to, just to finally show them that he's right. Verse 37. He says, but in, the, but in the account of the bush, the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. So he's like, all right, you guys only believe in the first five books of the Bible? Fine. Let's go to Exodus and I'll prove the resurrection from Exodus. Is that what you need? Fine, let's go there. And what did Moses call God in Exodus 3, he called him the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who in the story of Moses were already dead. So what's his point? His point is that, that this language of being the God of Abraham means that God is in a covenant relationship with Abraham. Not just that like when Abraham lived way back then, he worshipped God, but it's like God is his covenant God. And so how can God be in covenant relationship with people who don't exist? You have to be existent to be in a covenant. So if God is still their God, then that must mean in some way they're alive to him. And then I love verse 39. One of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, of course the Pharisees disagreed with the Sadducees. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. So now Jesus is playing them off each other. It's great. 
Verse 40, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus taught something radical and amazing that, that there will be a resurrection. You know, that's amazing. You think about that. And I think that's amazing, especially when people commonly say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. My, I was talking to my sister-in-law about this, um, who fortunately I don't have to marry because her brother isn't her husband. But anyway, my sister-in-law uh, is a, a doctoral student at NYU. And uh, she's down there studying sociology. And she said, even in NYU, Jesus, people believe that Jesus was a historical figure. And they believe that he was a good teacher. When, when they list good historical moral people, they'll list him. You know, Buddha and Gandhi and Jesus and Karl Marx. Well, it's New York City, so there you go. But they, uh, you know, they, they believe that Jesus was a good teacher. But it's like, wait a minute, what did he actually teach? And if you look at his teaching, you see his teaching wasn't let's all be nice and let's recycle and you know that kind of stuff. What was his teaching? It was crazy things like the kingdom of God is here and that he is the son of God and that he's the Messiah. And he said, repent and believe in me. Right? And he would say to people, you are forgiven. He would forgive sins. He would do things that are only the prerogative of God. And he would even teach Radical, bizarro things like the dead will be raised. You know, who is this guy? This was not just a moral teacher who taught let's all get along in society. He taught supernatural things that either it's really, really true or it really, really isn't true and he was really out of his mind. But it's not somewhere in the middle that's comfortable for us. And so he says there is a resurrection. And so the questions I want to leave us with today, I just want to ask two questions just to wrap this up. Two questions in light of Jesus' teaching here. The first question is this, very simple. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you think that's really going to happen? Or are you more on the continuum toward the Sadducees? And it's like, eh, maybe, who knows. But really, just do your best in this life. Make money, try not to get thrown in jail and you know, try to pay your taxes and retire well. Is, is that how you believe life is? Are you more like the Sadducees? And if you don't believe in an afterlife and you don't believe in a resurrection, follow-up question, are you willing to take that worldview to its logical conclusions? Because if there's no afterlife and there's no resurrection and there's nothing and we just die and that's it, then you know what? Life doesn't mean anything. It, what's the point? <laughs> when you live, you die doesn't matter how you live your life. We all die. So, you know, why try? You know, what's the difference between being Mother Teresa and Saddam Hussein? Ultimately, for yourself, nothing. You could say, well, you make the world a better place. But for what? Who cares? We all die. <laughs> so it all becomes relative and meaningless. You know, why, why go to all the trouble of being Mother Teresa? Why not be Saddam Hussein? You know, at least he lived in a palace and enjoyed some of his life for a while. You know, why not be a serial adulterer? Why not embezzle money from your company? Why not, you know, be a drunk and use drugs and do whatever you want to do? Who cares? You all end up in the same place and then it's over. So if there's no judgment, if there's no moral assessment of our lives, if we're just evolved from amoebas and our lives mean nothing and it's going to nothing and we're just random, then nothing means anything. And if we do have a sense of morality, it's very subjective and personally constructed. It has no objective weight. And so are you really ready to take all of the implications? Are you ready to, be, to, to cowboy up like Nietzsche? That's why I like Nietzsche. 
At least he was man enough to own all the implications of atheism and embrace it and say it. <laughs> that life was meaningless, so you might as well be Superman and push everyone over. Right? But is there a resurrection? And we as Christians say, oh yes, we believe in the resurrection. But I want to push back on us as Christians and say, do I really believe in the resurrection? When we say the Apostles' Creed and we get to that last line, and believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, do I really believe that? Have I, you know, has the skeptic thought through the implications of their belief? Has I have a Christian thought through the implications of my belief if I really believe in a resurrection? Because if I do, then... That changes everything. And suddenly, everything matters. Because this life then is simply the womb of eternity. And this life is simply the foyer of the great mansion into which Christ is calling me. And so everything I do here matters. Every thought matters. Every conversation matters. Every dollar matters. Every hour matters. It all matters. Life has meaning because there is eternal significance to the things I do in this life. And it should affect the way we address things. You know, if we really believe in the resurrection people, we should approach cancer in a radically different way than most people. And we should face our mortality with, with a totally different attitude than most people. It's always terrible. Death is terrible and disease is terrible. But as Christians, we're rising above it in Christ. Even as we struggle through it emotionally, there's a hope that we have like, why are you so excited? You're sitting there getting your, you know, uh, your treatments and your radiation. It's like, it doesn't matter. Resurrection. I know that this life, and even if I die, is a temporary hiccup in God's plan. And that God's going to overcome it. And I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just saying, what if we really believed in the resurrection? And, and what, how would that affect our relationships with each other in the church? This is the one I was really thinking about. So, so let's just take, we'll pick on someone here. We'll pick on Kent Forkner. So Kent Forkner. If you're going to be raised from the dead and live with Jesus forever, and I'm going to be raised from the dead and live with Jesus forever, then that means like you and I are going to be in community with each other forever. I know that's discouraging for you, but, but um, <laughs> I, think, I mean, think about that, dude. If you and I are going to be together forever, raised in Christ, you know, what does that mean for now? How should I treat Kent now? How should we love each other now? You know, it, it, it's like, wow, this is my family? You know, we are going to be in community with Christ in perfect unity forever in a resurrection state? It should affect the way we love each other in the church and the way we treat each other. Even when we disagree or we irritate each other, it's like you're going to be, you know, in the same cabin in Camp Heaven. So, <laughs> let us love each other as people who are going to be children of the resurrection. Because Jesus told us boldly that there would be a resurrection. It's an amazing thing. And the second question I want to ask, the first is, do you believe there's a resurrection? Second question, real quickly here. This is the real big one. Are you going to be in the resurrection? That's the real kicker. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age. So not all will be worthy. Not all will be there. So how do you become worthy of the resurrection? What do you have to do? Do you have to you know, sit through 20 Jeremy sermons or say 20 Our Fathers? How do you make yourself worthy of the resurrection? 
Um, and the answer, of course, is none of us are worthy. There's nobody here who deserves that resurrection. There's nobody here who deserves to be in that age. We have so embraced this age that we don't deserve to be in the age to come. The Bible's very clear. It says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. None of us are worthy of the resurrection. And so that's why, of course, we celebrate Holy Week. Because Jesus, who is worthy, Jesus became a human being. God the Son became a human being, Jesus. And He went to the cross. And on the cross, all of my unworthiness and the rejection that I deserve was heaped upon my Savior. And His worthiness was placed upon my shoulders. So despite all that I've done to make myself unworthy of eternal life, God has radically created a way for me to be brought in to eternal life and to be made worthy through the righteousness of Jesus. And then Jesus died. He succumbed to death. And then they put Him in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it on Friday. Saturday, all quiet, all good. And then on Sunday, the stone was rolled away and the Lord rose. The Lord is risen. Now you guys know this, right? We're going to say this next Sunday. The Lord is risen. He is risen the Lord is risen. He is risen the Lord is risen. He is risen and that's our hope. Socrates, as he lay dying, because he drank hemlock. Remember that story? He got put to death. He tried to drink hemlock and he was gathered, his, his students were around him, and, and Socrates was asked the question by one of his students, shall we live again? And purportedly, Socrates responded, I hope so, but no man knows. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, give us faith to see the truth of the resurrection. Lord, help us to see your greatness and your majesty and to believe that if you are raised, we will be raised. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we would believe what your word has taught us, what you taught us, Jesus, what you lived out through your own resurrection. God, I pray for anybody here who is grieving a loss, that you would give them hope of the resurrection. And God, I pray for all of us here as Christians that we would live our lives in light of eternity. That as we celebrate this Holy Week, we might let all of the ramifications of that reverberate throughout our lives. That we might just take time this week to put aside our busy schedules and sit in a chair for half an hour and think about it. Think about what it all means. And Lord, to by Your grace, put it into action. And Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone here who has questions and doubts, who's wondering if there is an afterlife, Lord, I, I can't convince anybody through argumentation, just like someone can't convince me that there isn't through argumentation. Lord Jesus, this has to be something that you and your power show them yourself. So Jesus, I pray that you would reveal your glory and your power to each soul here, that we might see that you are everything you said you were. So Lord, help us as a church this week to celebrate the resurrection from the dead. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I know it's not Easter yet, but I want to like prime the pump here. So 
Would you open up your hymnals to hymn number 357? Would you arise? And let's sing this song together. <clears throat> 